Good morning. How's everyone? Good, good, good. My name is Eric. If you don't know me, uh, we'd love to help you connect to our church, give you a gift, answer any questions you might have out in the Welcome Center, or you can hit the QR code and I'm new. Uh, welcome our friends and family online. Also, hopefully you noticed kind of post-pandemic, we have realized that we should be having handouts again. Woo, yeah. So you got a place to put notes and some um, just things going on in the church. Uh, just keep in mind, fathers out there, if you have a daughter, we have a father-daughter dance coming up. And just let me put this kind of succinctly here is that, men, here is an opportunity that if you don't teach your daughter how to dance, there is another man who's ready and willing, okay? So here's an opportunity for you to show her how to have fun, fun in a good way, where to put your hands, where not to put your hands, right? And if you can't make the dance, I would encourage you to take your daughter on a date and just show her what it looks like and what it should be. Also, uh, March 6th, if you'd save the day, if uh, you'd just pray about this, is we're going to have a meeting after this service uh, about summer missions. And so what we're trying to do is pray through what would it look like to send a team uh, to Uganda, or Romania, or Kenya. Here's what it's not. We're not trying to make a political statement. We're not making a stance one way or another. We're just saying in the New Testament, we see churches helping churches, Paul going and visiting and encouraging and loving and teaching uh, churches everywhere. And we want to see at our church, could we possibly put some people together and go love them uh, and encourage them in the faith and, and share the scriptures together and help them love Jesus more? Fair? Good? So if you just pray about that, uh, you can ask all the questions and get the details, what that would look like, what that might entail uh, on March 6th at 1130. So we're in Titus 2, and Titus 1 did a really good job of saying, hey, there is a church, it's to be led by qualified men that love Christ, that uphold the trustworthy word, the doctrine, they rebuke bad teaching, they hold good teaching, that loves the people. That's what we call, call orthodoxy. And then it's going to move now into the orthopraxy, right? The practice. This is how we do the right things that we're being taught. Here are the right things we need to do, the right behaviors, right attitudes, right actions. And what you're going to see is that it's really hard to be a Christian. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't do it and that we don't look at how God tells us to do it. So I'm going to start with a quote that kind of just helps us acknowledge that it is hard, uh, but hopefully encourage us as well. It says, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. Notice that, not tried and found wanting, quote, uh, wrote G.K. Chesterton, it has been found difficult and left untried. You see, so many people just they don't even try. Even practicing Christians can attest to the truth encapsulated in that clever verbal twist. Living the Christian life is hard. And when you're falling short, as we all do, it's easy to forfeit relationship with an invisible deity in order to indulge sinful real world desires. And so what we're going to look is this text is going to show us how to not forfeit the relationship with Jesus, how to hold that relationship and practice the things he's called us to practice. So let's pray and we'll start. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much uh, for your word, that it teaches us, it equips us, it unites us. And we just pray that your word uh, would grab our hearts to love you and follow you and want to be like you. We would see how you designed us and how you've called us uh, to model certain characteristics and traits. And so we pray that we would uh, be more like your son, Jesus, uh, that these would be your words and not mine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so 
we're going to look at three keys for how the church is supposed to help us be godly uh, and how the church is to help us train men, train women, and train you know, workers and employees. So first thing we're going to notice is that no matter what the world tells you, the Bible is true and it is very clear there is a difference between men and women. Okay? You're going to be told that there's not. The Bible is going to say that there is. This text is going to address it. It's going to say, hey, men, you should do this. Hey, women, you should do that. And it's going to say that because we are different. And, you know, there's different takes on this. And, you know, I don't, I don't always like getting into this stuff, but it's just good to cover sometimes, is that the world wants to split us apart. They want to put us in camps and say, you know, no, no, that's wrong. That's bad. And so there's a term that's called egalitarianism, right? So that means that you're equal in value if equal in function and authority. And they'll say that's the only way you can have men and women are equal if they have equal roles and equal authority. Um, what we're going to say is that's just not biblical. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's complementary, right? Equal in value, but different in function and different in authority. And to be honest, I don't like titles. So what I would like to say is we're just teaching what the Bible clearly states. And the Bible is going to even address that. And here's maybe an example of what I mean by they're, they're just different. Okay, It's not uncommon for a man to walk into his house and maybe his wife is crying. And he asks her, hey, why are you so upset? And she says, I'm a bad mom. Husband's taken off guard. He goes, no, you're a great mom. Like, what are you talking about? And this would have been a few years ago in context. The first service was too young to understand this. You guys a little bit older will know. Um, you know, she starts crying and she's saying, I didn't get the right BPA bottle for the baby, right? Now the baby's going to get cancer. And the baby's going to die. I'm a bad mom. Husband's like, I have no clue what BPA is. I like the old bottles. They were way cooler. And I think you're a great mom. And then what's the woman say? She's not comforted, is she? She begins to say, well, that's not what the moms in the nursery were saying. Saying only a terrible mom would use the old bottle, not use the right plastic. What a terrible mom to not do that. And so what's the mom getting at? That she's finding her validation as a mother through other women. Even though the husband's saying she's doing a great job. This text is going to address that. Hey, older women, go talk to the younger women. They need to know they're not bad and they need to know what is good. Take a man, for instance. He forgets his kids, pick him up from school. His buddy goes, you're a terrible father. The guy looks at him and goes, no, I'm not. My wife thinks I'm awesome. I could care less what you think, right? Very different in the way they approach things. And very different. And the scripture is going to say to, they have different roles and different functions, and that's okay. And the reason this gets all weird is because we read into the text and read into what it says. And so what we want to do is just look and say, what does God's word say? And how can we do it? And how can we uh, see how it's best for us? With that, 2-1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So he's saying, hey, Titus, teach the word of God. So it's pretty safe to say what follows from verse 1 is sound doctrine. Fair? Okay, so here we go. Older men, which in this context is between 40 and 50. Sorry, guys. Different times, right? Older men, be sober-minded dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, if you notice, the list is longer for the women than the men. Why that is, I don't know. I didn't write it. So, but what we are going to do is address what's there, okay? So the first thing it says is for men to be sober-minded. So that doesn't just mean, hey, men, don't get drunk, don't get hung up on pills, don't do drugs, 
is that there's a lot of things that can pollute your mind. And one of the biggest things that pollutes a man's mind is the culture. As a culture tries to tell us what a man is and what a man is not. One of the cultural norms is to tell men that you are dumb and you're too dumb to do anything of value. So just sit around and be dumb until your wife tells you what to do. That's every sitcom, right? No? You guys don't watch TV, huh? Okay, so if you guys ever do, you'll see that narrative. It's the narrative of it. And the men fall into these extremes. They fall into these extremes of what they're supposed to do because the culture is telling them, you know what, your identity, you're a real man. If you work hard and you make lots of money, then you're a real man. You're a real man if your wife is a trophy. You're a real man if you have lots of toys and you have bigger and better toys than the other guy. You're a real man if you have lots of people who answer to you. And so a man can find his identity in the things that are not of Christ. Instead of the Bible says you're a man if you love Jesus. And this is what it's saying here. You're sound in faith, sound in love. You're steadfast. You're sober-minded. You're dignified and have self-control. That's what the Bible says. So to be sober-minded is to take the word of God and to leverage it and measure it as our standard for manhood. You know, the culture will tell you, you know, to be a man, there's extremes, right? There's Bruce Willis. You should be walking around on glass, spitting out glass, guns blazing, right? T-shirt off, muscles popping. That's a man. Then the other extreme is you're supposed to be Nicholas Sparks. You're supposed to be crying and bringing flowers and a romantic. Or you're supposed to be a prince that saves a princess. And right, like all these things. The Bible doesn't mention any of those things in this text. Because the man is to be sound in love, sound in faith, steadfast, dignified, sober-minded. These are the things the Lord calls us to. So it's very important as a man, you realize your measurement is God's word. You fall short or you succeed based on its standard. We fail when we start to allow the world to tell us what a man should be. When you start to agree, your wife tells you, you know, you should be more like this. No, you should be more like this. If it incides with God's word, absolutely. Because there is some truth. You know, you might need to be firm, sound in faith. You might need to be sensitive, listen. Sound in love would include listening, don't you think? Okay. So keep working your way through this. He says, be sober-minded. Know what the word of God says. Be dignified. Right? So what are we weighing this against? Well, you got to think Cretans, the men were evil, liars, lazy, gluttons. That's not a man of dignity. Right? You tell the truth. You try not to be a hypocrite. You try to uphold the word of God. You're not always going to be worth maybe respecting, but in large part, you try to be respectable. That you do what you say, you say what you do, and you try to honor God in all you do. Now, this next part right here uh, would cover a multitude, if not everything for men. Be self-controlled. This is huge. Men, it's hard for men to be self-controlled. Men like to overindulge in the extremes, right? Either they give their life to their work and ignore their family, or they give their life to their hobbies, right? Lacking self-control would be if you know more about a sports person than your wife or your kids, you lack self-control. If you know more about your spreadsheet, your NASCAR, your deer, your gun, your car, than you do your family, that would be a lack of self-control. Is that fair? Yes, it is. Okay? So you just have to think through this, man, that we struggle with self-control. We like to indulge in what pleases us, whether it's 
bodily pleasure, emotional pleasure, stress relievers, whatever that is. And it's not saying, men, you can't have fun, but you need to love God first, your spouse second, your kids third, and then you get to have fun and do the other things. Without lack of self-control, you'll overindulge and you'll neglect either your leadership role in your family, your relationship with Jesus, or your other responsibilities you have. So you're saying, you know what, men? Be self-controlled. Now, be sound in faith. This one's maybe a little bit harder. So I got a quote that hopefully helps us from Spurgeon. It says, the worldling blesses God while he gives him plenty. So it's saying, look, worldly people love God when God gives them what they want. But the Christian blesses him when he smites him. He believes him to be too wise to err and too good to be unkind. He trusts him where he cannot trace him, looks, upon, looks up to him in the darkest hour and believes that all is well. What is he getting at, man? He's saying there will come a time in your life, man, when either your wife, your kids, your friends, or your family will say, curse God and die. There is no God. Where is God? Your God's absent. He's not here. Much like the book of Job, they lose everything. And Job's wife is like, you just need to leave that silly God. He's gotten you nowhere. And it is your job as the man to stand in the face and say, I trust him. I trust God. I trust his character, his goodness, his loving kindness, his patience. God does not lack power. He is able. He does not lack character. He is good. This is a part of verse 10, adorning the doctrine of God, his goodness, his greatness, his patience, his kindness, and his mercy. Men to be sound in the faith means that though your wife might get sick, your kids might get sick. Your kid might get beat up at school. You might lose your job that you will not waver in your faith, your relationship with Jesus. You will stand the line. You will stand firm and point them back to the word of God as the trustworthy word was taught to you. That's why it says, be sound in faith, men. You are to be the anchor in your family. That when the world falls apart, you will stand up and point them back to the scripture. Sound in faith, healthy in faith, strong in faith. That's what it means. The next part is sound in love. Now here's the thing, men. What are we told in Ephesians 5? To love our brides as Christ loved the church. Does the church deserve the love of Jesus? Not a trick question, guys. No, absolutely not. Did the church earn Christ's love? No, absolutely not. So then the love is unmerited, unearned. It is freely given. So men, to be sound in love means when your wife's being mean to you, ignoring you, neglecting you, possibly even slandering you, you never have an excuse to not love her. Okay? And if you, if you walk yourself through this passage, it is out of a love for Christ we do these things. No wife deserves it. No husband deserves it. No child deserves it. It is, I love God so much, I'm going to love you in this way. The way I am treating you is a reflection of how much I trust Jesus, how much I trust God that he sets up a structure in the church and a structure in the home, and it says there to be ordered and done this way. 
You love your wife in that way. No matter what. It's not quid pro quo. It's not tit for tat. It's not if you, then I. I love you no matter what. I love you no matter what. So keep working your way through this. And in steadfastness. Steadfastness. I mean, it means be faithful. You don't quit. Men have become quitters in this world, haven't they? Men by nature don't like things they're not good at. So they quit. They run away. That's why there's so many single families. To be a man of God, what it's saying in this text is that no matter how bad your family gets, no matter how hard it gets, you will not leave. You will faithfully love them, faithfully point them to Jesus, faithfully point them to what God has called you to in a dignified way, in a sober-minded way, Glory of God, not the glory of man. And he's saying, men, you need to do this. You need to grow up in this way. A way that kind of frames this, I found in the commentary. It says, you know, men, you need to arrive here. It says, fickleness, rash passions, and impulsiveness should be things of the past for men in this stage of life. Now that they have made Christian confession and are engaged in Christian life and service. Saying, men, you're done being fickle. You're done being rash and impulsive. You understand the things of the Lord. You're sound in your faith. You're sober-minded. You're sound in your love. And you're unmovable. You're faithful. And then he hops down into six. He says, teach the younger men to do this. To be self-controlled. Teach them. Because some of you guys, are, you're right now going, oh, wow, I didn't know that this is what it meant to be a Christian man. No one told me this when I got married. I never would have got married, Right? And it's like, well, oh, well, guys, this is what you committed to, to love your wife in this way. And you need to find a younger man and tell him, look, if you're going to be married, this is what it means to lead a family, be sound in faith, sound in love, immovable, self-controlled, not given to your passions, not running away, standing up for God. Young men need to know these things so that they can become men who are able to become married. Quick side note on this. If you're a young woman and you want to know if you should date a man, a quick way to cut to the chase, ask the dad if he thinks his son should be dating. And he will tell you, probably not. He can't even take care of a puppy, right? Like, just think about it. Think about it. He's saying young men need to be trained by older men. They need to know these things so that they can be self-controlled, keep working. They need to model good works. They need to have integrity in the teaching. What does that mean? This is why we try to keep pointing you back to the scripture. There's integrity in what's being taught because it's not an opinion. It's not a preference. It's not a platform. It's just simply what the text states. Young men need to know that. You're called to be a leader, not because you're smarter, not because you're better, not because you're more godly, because God tells you to. There's integrity in that. There's nothing great about a man. It's just what God calls the man to do. And that's why the man does it, out of love for God. And so you work your way through that sound in speech, right? Ephesians 4.29, cannot be condemned so that the opponent may not be able to put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. He's saying, men, you need to do that. You need to grow up in that way. And you need to strike the balance. And it is a hard balance, the balance of Christ, right? He is truth, but he's also love. He is lion, but he's also lamb. 
He is, you know, gentle, but he's also firm. He's strong. And so you see these things working together. So what would be an example of that? So here's, here's my attempt at an example for you. So I don't know about in your house, but in my house, when I come home, sometimes I get the phrase from my wife, I'm done, right? Which means the kids are all going to die if you don't step in. So I'm to, to how do you work this out? Well, I think early on what I tried to do is just walk in, drop the hammer, and walk out and be like, all right, job's done. That was easy. Don't know what she's, you know, so worried about. Well, then inevitably she's like, well, what did you say? What did you do? And she's like, that's terrible. That's totally wrong. That's not going to help. You just made things twice as hard. And I'm like, wait, I did what you asked and it got worse? Like, that's your fault, not mine, right? So like trying to think through this. And then it dawned on me. I'm trying to lead out of context and without the help of my wife. So the, the way this works in complementary roles is I ask her now, what kid, what they do, what are they going through? What did you already say? What are you hoping to accomplish? And, and what do I need to know? Because sometimes the kid needs more firmness than gentleness. Sometimes they need a lot of gentleness. They're having a rough time at school. They're having a hard time with your friends. And my wife is there to help me lead my kids, correct my kids, because she understands the temperature, the emotional context, because she's around them all the time. And so when the two work together, helper, leader, they're complementary, and it helps the family. And God says, I've ordered the family to be in a certain way. And I mean, we have to think through this. Did God write the Bible to only be used for the first 500 years of his existence? Or does it principles work always and forever? Always and forever. And he's saying when it works out this way, things go much better. Okay? It's when, when men live the way God designed them to, and they love their wife, and they wash her with the word of God, and they protect her holiness, and they love her as Christ loved the church, then the part in the woman part of submissiveness comes a lot better. It works out a lot natural because the woman's like, I can follow a man who's loving the Lord and following Christ and wants to lead our family toward that end, okay? then it works better and together. So before we move on, men, you need community. You need men to help you understand what it means to have sound faith and sound love, to be sober-minded, to uh, be steadfast. And so we need that from each other. So, you know, look for that. So women, okay, so we're going to transition now to verse three. Here's the thing. I'm not a woman, okay? But I can tell you what the text says and what the text means. Doesn't mean I'm an expert on women, but it does mean that the Bible has things to say and we should take it serious, okay? So let's just read it and then we'll explain it. It says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, let's walk through some things really quick here. Does it say that the woman is to be submissive because the man is smarter than her? Okay, no. Does it say that the man is more important, so the woman needs to submit? Did you see that in the text? Does it say that the woman can't work? Does it say that the woman can't make more money than the man? 
Does it say that the man is more godly than the woman? No. So how does this get so twisted? Because we read that into the text. What does the text simply say? It says that you need to do this at the end of verse 5 so that the word of God may not be reviled. So it's saying, look, woman, this is here for you to follow. And I'm asking you to trust me, God, that I can lead you, woman, through a sinful man that you might be smarter than, more mature than, make more money than. So that when people see the way you live, it would acknowledge and affirm that you follow God's designed order and that his words would not be reviled. That you say, oh yeah, I trust Jesus except for when it comes how I should be in the home. I trust that he died for me, but I don't trust his word and how I should be a wife and a mother. Saying it needs to be carried out so that God would not be mocked. It's a different take, isn't it? But this is what the text says. So, very important we realize, submitting to the husband is not because he deserves it. It is because Christ deserves it. And he is worthy of our trust. Right? So, walk through the first two uh, things it tells us not to do as the wife or the woman. Isn't it funny that it's so specific? It says, don't slander and don't be a slave to wine. Not much has changed from then to now. Right? Like, it's just being honest. Hey, because look, wine and slander sometimes go together because the lips loosen and the words start flowing. And it's saying, look, you shouldn't be a slave to this. You shouldn't be a slave to much wine. And we've come to a point in time where we have five-year-old birthday parties at two o'clock with three glasses of wine. And it's like, really? Can we not have a kid's birthday party without getting toasted? Is that where we're at? And what's he saying? It's like, look, being a mom is hard. You read Proverbs 31, that's hard. And so older woman, you go talk to the younger woman and say, it is hard, but you don't run to wine and you don't run to gossip. You run to Jesus. Okay? It is really hard to be a mom. It's really hard to be a woman. And part of it is the slander. Because what happens in, in woman land is you create doctrines on what it means to be a good mom and a good wife. You have to buy a certain stroller. You have to have a certain, you know, bottle, car seat, wear a certain purse, dress a certain way. And if you don't, we'll crucify you with that doctrine. Women are laughing. Some of you aren't laughing, but it's true. It's true. And it's saying, older woman saying, look, don't, don't fall prey to the slander. There will always be slander. Don't go to the wine. You need to love your husband. You need to love your children. And you don't love your husband so he'll treat you like a trophy. He is not your Jesus. You love your husband because you made a commitment before God. And that was your choice. You might not like it now, but it was your choice. You had it. You made it. And you were to help him raise your family, make your home in the image of Jesus. You are to fulfill Deuteronomy 6 to teach them about the Lord in the morning, the afternoon, the evening, and the night. And it is not because your husband is smarter. It is not because your husband is better. It is simply because that's the way God said to do it. And he's saying, do you trust God enough that he can lead you through a sinful man? It's really what it comes down to. And that's through the submissiveness of the wife to say, man, wow, you must really love your husband. It's like, no, I really love Jesus. I love him too, but it's about Jesus. Make no mistake. 
wow, you love Christ so much you'd listen to your husband? I know, that's a big one. Isn't that a big statement? Like, it's so beautiful when you just look at the way God wrote it and the way God designed it. Part of this is saying that God has a better plan than the world. There is a role for a man, there is a role for a woman, and this is how it works, and this is how it's executed. And it's good for us, and it's God-honoring, and it helps us, verse 10, adorn the doctrine of God. That's the goal of all of this, right? That we would adorn the doctrine of God. So we got to keep moving through this. Verse 9 now, he says, you know what? Now i got to talk to the employees or, or maybe the volunteer workers who volunteer at organizations. They're to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative. What it's saying, look, if you're an employee or you're volunteering, if your boss says something, you do it. If your boss tells you to pick up trash, you pick up trash. If he says here, be at six, not 601, you're there at six. And this has become a problem in the world that millennial Christians think that because mommy and daddy told them they could be whatever they want to be, that they don't have to listen to their boss. No, you do. If your boss says it, you listen. Right? The boss said it. The world should think, man, I want an army of Christians to work for me because they work hard, they don't complain, they don't slander, they don't steal, pilfer, right? They are honoring, kind. Shouldn't the world think that of Christians? Absolutely. And then men think through this, it tells us to be submissive to the master, right? The boss. So if a man's doing this right, he's submissive to the Lord and he's submissive to his boss. He should understand what it takes to have to submit. Maybe the insecurity that comes, the swallowing of your pride, the questions you have, the not understanding why, and that allows him to say, you know what, I'm leading my wife. I'm going to ask her to submit. I should probably say it in a certain tone. I should probably be able to explain the rationale. All the things that I like when I'm trying to do what my boss is asking me. There should be a sympathy there, shouldn't there? Absolutely. So you think through this thing, man, do your job. Don't be argumentative. Don't steal. Have good faith and adorn the doctrine of God. Adorn the doctrine of God. So in the way you work, they see a man who doesn't slander, who isn't lazy, who works hard, who is faithful, who does love, that they would say, man, I see God in the way you work. The way this works out is hopefully you, you can be a witness in your job to say there's nothing better than loving and following Jesus. It's the same witness that when people walk into a Christian home, they see order. They see that the man loves his wife, that he would die for her, that he would go to any length to protect her holiness. He would go to any length to make sure that he could present her to God as spotless, that he works hard for her. And they see the wife, that she manages that house methodically, meticulously, trying to help those kids know Christ, help her husband lead them, help the whole family be godly. And they're like, wow, there's serious business going on here. And they're like, it's right. It's how God designed us. We love him. We want to live the way he created us because he's the potter, we're the clay, and we live 
to adorn the doctrine of God on us. It comes out in the way you're a man. It comes out in the way you're a woman. It comes out in the way you're an employee. And we want to adorn him in all of those things. Amen. So some questions for us to think about. Question one. What topic in the verses am I struggling with the most? And how can I work on it? Men, if you don't know, your wife already wrote it down. Okay? She did. She already wrote it down. Mm -hmm, Honey needs to work on that. Now, here's what you need to understand. God says that the woman, right, the wife is the helper and she is to help. And that's not, you have to understand, that is not make you less than. God understands how men are. Wife, if you come with a club to beat your husband, he's going to go get a bat. And then if you get a bat, he's going to get a bow and arrow. Then if you get a bow and arrow, he's going to get a gun. You get a gun, he's going to get a missile launcher. You get a missile launcher, he'll get a tank. You get a tank, he'll get a jet fly over and bomb you, right? What am I getting at? Men go to war. That's how they are. And he's saying, don't go to war. Don't go to war. Help your husband. Help him see the things he cannot see. Help him be sound in faith, sound in love, steadfast. In the same way, husband, if you see something for your wife, don't domineer and dictate. How are you going to help her do that? How are you going to, Ephesians 5, help protect her so she doesn't lose her mind? That she doesn't want to run to a bottle of wine because she can't find sanity in her own home? How are you going to help her be patient? How are you going to help her pray, read her Bible, grow? How are you going to lead her in those things? How are you going to accomplish your role as the leader in your home? Okay. Two, how can my home and life adorn the doctrine of God? How can people see God is good, God is kind, God is merciful, God is loving, God hates evil, God is patient, God is holy. How can you help that in your home life for people to see it, as an employee for people to see it? Three, who am I mentoring or discipling? This is how it's hard to be a Christian, but it's, God's like, hey, I gave you help. It's supposed to be older men saying, hey, this is what it means to be a husband. This is what it means to be a dad. This is what it means to be a worker, an employee, a boss, a man of God. This is what it means to have sound faith. This is what it means to be sound in love. This is what it means to be faithful and not quit, not give up. Honor the Lord. Adorn the doctrine of God. That's what it means. Who are the younger women you're teaching? This is what it means to love your husband, not use your husband. It's what it means to love your kids, Deuteronomy 6. Not so that your kids will be your idol, but that your kids might glorify God and love him and serve him faithfully. What does it mean to not give in to the doctrine that women create and slander each other with? How do you survive that? How do you survive carpool without getting blown up, right? Like the things maybe not necessarily in the Bible, but an older woman's like, hey, I've been there. I've survived that war. I understand how to do that. I want to help you do that. And if you're young, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, I need help. You look old, not trying to be mean, but you're older than me, right? You help me? I need help. It's biblical. It's what we're supposed to be doing. Four, what is the relationship between my beliefs and my practice? Orthodoxy, orthopraxy. Orthodoxy, what you believe, right? Verse one, sound doctrine. I believe God is like this. God has ordered us in this way. Now, how does my lifestyle match what I believe? Do I practice what I, what I see in God's word? 
And what do I need to reconcile where they don't match up? And then five, what is the hardest part about being a Christian employee in a non-Christian work environment? How can I manage that better? How can I adorn the doctrine of God, my Savior, so that all might see him? Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you and we praise you that you tell us how to live. And it is our prayer that we would supremely believe and practice your way is better. You designed men and women to be complementary. They are unique and different, but they're to come together to honor you, love you, glorify you to your glory and to our good. And it's our prayer that we would trust you in all things, the way we should act as a husband, a father, a mother, a wife, a husband, a child, an employee, a servant. We would trust you in all things. That is our deep prayer. Help us love you and trust you and live like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to move into a time of communion. And before we do that, a practical piece. What One of the things I've been noticing is that people are taking the juice part first. And then they're trying to get the cracker. And we, yeah, you're laughing because you've done it. So then when you try to get the cracker, the juice falls. Then you have no juice. So a safe way to do it. Bread first, which by the way, it's gluten-free. Didn't know if you knew that, right? Bread first, then when you get to the juice, you don't spill anything. Second part, it would be really helpful if you collect these and take them out with you. We'd appreciate that. So communion, something we do to remember Jesus. Matthew 26, 26 through 28 says this. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. He said, take, eat, this is my body. He took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So he's saying this is a remembrance that we're forgiven, we're paid for, we're purchased. Old Testament, they had to go to the priest and they had to pay and they had to keep doing it. New Testament, Christ is the permanent, perfect payment for our sins. So we go to him in communion. We remember that we're sinful. We sin against him. And that sin should break our heart, not because we don't think we're going to heaven, but because we have a relationship with him. We love him. And we can't believe that, that we would sin against someone who loves us so much, would pay for our sin. So you mourn and you weep over your sin. One of the easy ways to, to, to do this in service is just look back in the passage and say, man, God, I'm sinful here. I'm sinful and I need to stop. You died for me. You want better for me. I need to trust you. So you mourn the sin. And then you thank him for paying for the sin. And then you celebrate that you're forgiven from the sin. Celebrate that he always loves you, never forsakes you. Heaven is your home. He is with you. The church is with you. God has gifted you immeasurably for all things. And, and then after you've done that, you know, the music will play and you'll have an opportunity to respond. Part of that celebration is singing, singing out that God loves you, that Christ died for you, that he's great and glorious and magnificent. You have an opportunity to respond in that way. And so after a while, uh, Matt will lead us in worship and give us a chance to respond to the great things that Jesus has done for us. So I'm going to pray, and then you'll be free to 
uh, partake in communion. Dear Jesus, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Um, it's our prayer that we would remember the cost of that sin, that we would mourn our sin because we sinned against you. And then we would celebrate the great work of Jesus on the cross, dying and paying for our sin, that we would be grateful, that we would be uh, excited and thankful and respond in singing and joy for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.